HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by The Great Grow Along. Sign up at greatgrowalong.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're sipping on stories about how access, legislation, and circumstance affect what we drink. I think now it's really changing that there's a growing excitement about drinks that are zero-proof and alcoholic. So it just felt like kind of a very good timing. This plant's been around for millions of years, and uh, I just think that it's so special, so uniquely uh, American and pre-American, uh, that it just should have a very prominent place in our society you know, for a lot of different reasons. It is helpful to be able to sell one drink. It would be more helpful to be able to sell two or three at a time. Tune in to Meet and 3, available wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, hey, welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. We're recording remotely, and today is Tuesday, March 9th. 2021. I'm Jimmy Carboni. I'm the host. And you can join and become a member at heritageradionetwork.org. So one of the, the upsides of the pandemic and recording remotely is that we get to talk to people all over the world. And uh, our good buddy, Stephen Beaumont, um, put together a little show with, with some friends in Toronto, Ontario. So we're going to go around the room and everyone's going to introduce themselves briefly. Let's start with Stephen. Hey, Jimmy. Um, I'm Stephen Beaumont. Uh, I've been writing about beer uh, all around the world for about 30 years now. Um, I'm the author of, I think it's 15 books now. Um, my latest in North America is Will Travel for Beer, about beer and travel. And coming up this fall, the third edition of the World Atlas of Beer, which I co-author with Tim Webb. And it's a great book. And Jordan? I'm Jordan St. John. I've been writing about beer for about a decade at this point. I've only written five books, but then I drank so much beer that they gave me a school. <laughs> and really looking forward to hearing more about you. And Mary Beth? I'm Mary Beth Keefe. I've been the head brewer at my family's brewery, um, the Granite Brewery, for the last 12 years. Um, we have a unique system. It's all open fermentation, and our house yeast strain is Ringwood, which is not so easy to come by these days. Um and yeah, I'm really happy to be here. Thanks for including me. All right. So, Stephen, let's set the stage. So you're you know, noted as the author of the World Atlas of Beer, but during the pandemic, 
you've been stuck mostly in Ontario. So um, just to tell us about why you picked these two guests and um, kind of like what, you know, what you've been rediscovering about Toronto the last year. Well, Jimmy, you know, the just before we started recording, I mentioned this time last year I was in Brazil and that was the last trip that I was on um, until now. Uh, and it one of the upsides, I suppose you could call it, of, of being stuck at home has been rediscovering my home beer market because usually I spend a lot of time on the road. Um, you know, I, I kind of stick to what I know around my home market rather than getting too terribly experimental. So I, I've been able to look around me and not just in Toronto, but down into Niagara wine country, which is about an hour, hour and a half drive away. And I've been finding some absolutely astounding beer. Um, and that's when, you know, when you and I started talking about this, it's like, you know, Jimmy, why don't we just do a story about Toronto? It's not that far from where any, you know, the bulk of your listeners are. So uh, maybe when all of this is over and the border opens up again, people are going to want to come up and really, you know, find out that there's this amazing beer scene sitting right on their doorsteps here in Toronto. Great. And um, so why did you invite Jordan to join us? Well, Jordan knows more about Ontario beer than I do. Um, so it, it would, I, I constantly am going to Jordan saying, oh, tell me more about this. Tell me more about that. What can you tell me about this? Um, he, he and his uh, co-author, Robin LeBlanc, have written um, the Ontario Craft Beer Book or Craft Beer Guide, Jordan? Craft Ontario? Beer Guide, that's right. Craft Beer Guide, uh, twice. Um, so, you know, they've covered it all and they continue to cover it all with their podcast. Um, and then, uh, you know, I was looking for a brewer to have on and, and having another boys club on air didn't seem very good. So I thought, you know, you know, who's really doing some amazing stuff right now is Mary Beth. And she has been brewing um, for quite some time, as she said, at the Granite. And the Granite is one of Toronto's great, great treasures. It is really a lovely brewer. So uh, I was delighted when she agreed to come on. Well, thanks, Steve. And that's a great intro. Um, we're going to start with Mary Beth. Um, I'm fascinated by what, what you guys are doing. Um, you know, you, you, you make cascales for one and you use the Ringwood system. So yeah. tell us a little backstory on your brewery and, th and then we can there's a couple conversations we're going to have with you. OK, yeah. So um, we are the second granite brewery. The first was in Halifax. And that one opened in 1986. Unfortunately, it's no longer operational, which is really sad, but uh, we are still going here strong. We opened in 1991. So my uncle Kevin, he went over to England and uh, with the intention of learning how to brew. And he learned from Alan Pugsley, the Ringwood system, um, and Peter Austin, of course. So Alan Pugsley then came over in, this was in 1985, I believe. And in 1986, Alan Pugsley came over and helped him set up the first Ringwood system in North America. Um, and as Stephen had said earlier, it was one of the first craft breweries in uh, Nova Scotia. So five years later, um, my dad wanted the same thing as my uncle. He thought what he was doing over there was amazing. There was not much of a market for craft beer at all here. So he too went and learned with my uncle and Alan Pugsley, who was in Maine at the time. 
and opened this one here at Mount Pleasant in Eglinton in uptown uh, Toronto, 1991. So yeah, this is our 30th year that we've been operational. And yeah, um, I grew up with the place. I was 10 years old when it opened. So it's been a huge part of my life this whole time. And I always thought what my dad did was amazing. Like how cool is it that your dad makes beer for a living? So I, I started coming in when I was about 13 and over the years learned more and more and spending some time in England where my husband is from, I really got a appreciation for what we had here. And when I came back in 2008 from my traveling, that's when I really hunkered down and learned how to brew and I've not looked back since. Well, let's let's talk about the Ringwood controversy because the last time I had a, a brewer, I think it was a Geary's, David Geary from Maine, was the last brewer that I had on. Must have been eight or nine years ago, who actually was using the Ringwood system. Okay. Um, yep. What? Why is there a controversy about it? And then what? What? What beers are you making with that system that other brewers are not? Uh, I think the main thing is the amount of diacetyl that it creates, which it definitely does. Um, We are very adamant in our practice of diacetyl tests and rests, and we will not crash a beer until it is clear. And my perception of diacetyl has been become so in tune as a result because I hate it so much and I do not want my beers to have it. Um, to be quite honest, I just got a closed fermenter two years ago now, and I wanted it because I felt like I had done a lot with our Ringwood beer. And to answer your question, we primarily do English ales here because it is a Ringwood, um, sorry, it is a British ale yeast and it works really well with bitters, with stouts, uh, golden ales, blonde ales, but it has a very distinct fruity, florally characteristic that you will perceive in all of the beers that we make. So you're limited in that respect. And that's why, like I said, that's why I wanted the close fermenter because I wanted to experiment more and make styles that I wasn't able to do with our Ringwood yeast. But now having... Um, something to compare it to. The Ringwood yeast is just so hardy and like it will kill anything in its path. We have not, we've had maybe in 30 years, two or three infections. With my clothes fermenter, I've had more of that, more of those in two years. So it's just like, it's really an amazing yeast. Um, you, you learn a lot with it. it. It evolves over time. We've now pitched this one. Uh, this one's been going for 1,108 brews now. So we've been using the same pitch over and over again for that time. That's another reason, reason why I love it is because it's very cost effective. And yeah, you're able to just keep going and going with it forever if you take care of it. So uh, did that answer your question? I may, I may have gone on a tangent there. No, it, it, it's great to hear that, that someone's using it because, like I said, 10 years ago, it was a dirty word. And, Stephen, mm. didn't you m- mention that you had a conversation with a, a well-known brewer about Ringwood many years ago? Yes, a, a very well-known New York brewer um, many, many years ago at um, the 
after party from the Great American Beer Festival, and I think probably after maybe a couple too many beers to have a coherent conversation. Um, but yeah, it, it was it was very adamant that uh, you know the Ringwood system at the time is just you know there's so many problems with the beers that they produce in the northeastern U.S. at the time, and I I countered by saying, look. I know the granite extremely well. I know the other granite extremely well. I know um, Heart Brewing at the time was using the Ringwood. They're defunct now, unfortunately. Um, uh, Leon Dor in Quebec, Saint Ambroise, McCausland Brewing in Quebec. You know, all of these breweries were producing some of the best beers in Canada then. And I thought, you know, what's the problem with the system? You just use it right. And and I got to say, you know, and. I used to live down the road from the granite uh, many years ago, and I was very much a regular um, there. And I can say quite honestly, I've never tasted a touch of diacetyl in any of the granite beers. Well, that's a that's a testament to the brewers, um, Jordan. What, tell us uh, what does the granite mean to to you in in Toronto? Well, it's interesting. It's come to mean more over time. I live about a mile from the granite, uh, about a subway stop away. And I didn't really have an appreciation for English beers until I started teaching the uh, George Brown uh, beer certificate that I'm the head of currently. I, uh, I found that English, like authentic imports, were becoming hard to find. And as a result, I started using the granite beers in the class. But it didn't really make a lot of sense to me until it kind of crept up. Like that ringwood yeast sort of gets in your head, I think. Uh, one of the problems that you have is that there's this sense of homogeneity with the uh, yeast strains people use. Like, there's a lot of Fuller's ESB yeast kicking around. I think that's WLP002. And Ringwood's different. It gives you this red apple character, I think. You know, sometimes you get a little bit of, uh, I think tobacco is something that it picks out of hops. It's really characterful. Um, I know that, like, the Granite's IPA for me, which I think is Fuggles and Goldings, it's just real traditional English stuff. And in a market where people are making, you know, modern hazy IPAs, it really stands out. It's a really high quality product. Um, you know, Mary Beth also makes fantastic modern, like hazy IPAs in that closed fermenter she was talking about. But the fact that you have this piece of authentic sort of 1980s craft beer that's still in the market, that's really kind of what the granite represents to me. I mean, you're on the second generation uh, of Keefe's running the place, but uh, it, it's heritage for the market and also for all the different stuff that we've had over the course of craft beer in Toronto, if that makes sense. Yeah. No, that's great. Uh, let me just throw this out there. The other day I saw a brewer that I know, he posted saying that it's funny that so many people are trying to make styles of beer that that are not for people that like the taste of beer. <laughs> so how would you say that, Mary Beth, how would you characterize the beers that you make? Right. Um, so something that I say constantly is that we are a very traditional brewery, um, mostly with the English styles that we do. But even with the close fermenter, I've still stuck to the classics like um, – West Coast IPAs, I could never do that because the Ringwood is not clean enough for that. But the New England's, that's like trendier for me. Um, I was really excited to do one of those because I do love them when they are done well. Um, but yeah, like we'll 
never do a sour beer here. We will never do a slushy beer. We will not do, what are the other, oh, like milkshake or, uh, yeah. I just don't like adding extra things to my beer. I I like the main ingredients just fine. Well, that's, re- that's very refreshing. Um, the other question for you, Mary Beth, is, you know, what, what's really cool is that now there's a generation like yourself who grew up <laughs> in their their parents brewery and are now running it and and uh is there like a a camaraderie amongst other brewers like that that you know of any other family breweries that that you you know um i'd just say overall we are such a community that you're not going to really find another brewery out there that isn't willing to help you out if you have a question or lend you some grain if you need it or anything like that. There are definitely family-run breweries out there, and I know them, but just as well as I know any of the other guys, I would say. That I can think of there, I can't think of any with a second-generation brewer. Jordan, am I missing someone? Uh, Not that I'm aware of. I don't think that we have that kind of phenomenon in Ontario so much, because they really only started around 1985. I know that Sierra Nevada, they're obviously on a second generation of bells, I want to say, in Michigan. It's sort of that territory. You need to be of a certain vintage as a brewery to be able to make that happen. Hey, hey, we'll be back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio. This episode is brought to you by The Great Grow Along a three-day hosted virtual garden festival connecting you with the influencers, tastemakers, and cutting-edge content of today's gardening world. The Great Grow Along will feature 40-plus sessions on topics ranging from houseplants to DIY landscaping. New plant parents and first-time gardeners will gain practical advice and creative inspiration from celebrated garden experts and industry leaders. Costing $29.95, tickets allow attendees to mix and match a wide range of sessions or choose to follow one of the conference's six tracks, which include edible gardening, urban gardening, pollinators and plants, DIY landscaping, houseplants, and dig deeper. The Great Grow Along will take place March 19th through 21st, 2021. Sign up at greatgrowalong.com. Hey, 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 welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. It's a special episode uh, with some friends in Toronto, Ontario. So we were just talking with Mary Beth Keefe of uh, Granite Brewing in Toronto. Mary Beth, you were talking about the Ringworld system, but um, I'm really interested in this whole English style of beers. And what's cool is that um, in the States, it kind of went away. I, I didn't really see, there weren't that many people doing casts for like the last 10 years. I know there's exceptions now. Um, but you, for, for you, the cast scale seems to be an important thing. I, I saw um, an Instagram Instagrammer from Toronto, the at Beer Sisters, who seemed to know you really well. And she posted in 2012 at her wedding, she was so psyched to have the, the bride's ale by, by granite uh, on the bar in a cask ale. Right, right. Um, so yeah. Tell us about Cascale and what you're doing and and, um, some of the new innovations you've done with Cascale. So we've been doing Cask since 1992. Um, My dad started 
the year after we opened. And the first Cascale he did was our Best Bitter Special, which to this day I think is a favorite among real beer lovers. And it has everything you need. It has flavor. Um, it goes down so nice and smooth, but it's only 4.5%. So it's a real sessionable uh, real sessionable beer. And yeah, so um, it's something that has become very important to me over time and maintaining that practice has been great. So it's been tough during the pandemic not being able to serve cask on a beer engine as it should be, but we have gotten creative with the help from our friends from Wellington because they started it first and we've been doing cask in a box um, in the meantime. And yeah, I say, this is my joke, I say that we will never be a hype brewery in that we won't do the slushy beers and that sort of thing, but this is our hype beer, the cask in a box. That's something that kind of flies off the shelves when we have it available. And it's pretty, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Oh, I can't think of it. But anyway, it's just really nice to see that during this time, that's something that people I think miss a lot from the pub is going in for Cascale because that's not something you can have from a can. Um, so it's, yeah, it's not the same thing, but it's a pretty good substitute in the meantime. And yeah, we just do our best, better special. That's one that we always have on. And then we'll throw other things in like our old peculiar, our galactic pale ale, but best, better special is the one that people really want. So that's what we, um, yeah, I just filled some yesterday actually. So it's a pretty consistent thing. It's cask in a box. So what does that mean? It's essentially like wine, like a wine box. So it's the bladder inside of a box and we fill it directly from our casks with a special filler. Um, and yeah, we just put it in the box and it's got a spout. So you sit it in your fridge or on the counter because it's real ale. You don't want to keep it out too much because there is, um, active yeast in there still, but, um, yeah, you just fill it as you would the wine from the box. If you're familiar with that. A much classier, that's rude. I guess you can get some maybe good wine in a box, but um, yes, it's very classy. So you're, it's classier than wine in the box. <laughs> maybe. I don't want to get in trouble for saying that. So, so Jordan, you, t- tell us about Cascale in Toronto. Because like I said, it, it, I remember like 12 years ago, people were doing it in New York and then it just kind of went away. First of all, I should point out that uh, cask beer in a box is just about as classy as the person drinking it. I picked one of those up from the granite before Christmas, and I managed to get through about eight pints in uh, three and a half to four hours. <laughs> so possibly, you know, not all that classy. Yeah, it's four and a half percent, remember? That's a good point. Uh, cask beer is really important to Toronto's development as a beer scene. We have uh, a legendary, well, in Canada, legendary bar in Toronto called Bar Volo. It's run by the Marana family. They're uh, Sicilians who have dedicated themselves to running uh, a cask beer festival, which is kind of amazing. Uh, uh, Cask Days is like the largest cask beer festival outside of the Great British Beer Festival, I believe. It's certainly the largest one in North America. And basically, this has been part and parcel of our development as a beer scene over time. You know, we had a lot of traditional craft breweries throughout the 2000s. 
uh, mostly due to the fact that people were a little bit apprehensive about trying new and interesting beer styles. We became really good at making English styles. Uh, they were just kind of legacy from the first blush of craft beer here in the 1980s and 1990s. So we had people making brown ale. We had people making bitter and ESB and things like this. And Ralph uh, Marana decided he was going to start Cask Days in order to get people to experiment a little bit and also to showcase the things that we had in the province. And over time, it grew and it grew and it changed locations a couple of times. And by the end of the sort of run of Cask Days, uh, up to this point, they had something like 400 casks from different countries. There was a California section. There was an Oregon section. There's all sorts of different provinces in Canada represented. And all of them served on cask. Uh, so this is really kind of an important uh, construct for us. In other markets, you know, New York, for example, I don't think that it could have caught on in quite the same way because, you know, it's an American jurisdiction. We had this British colonial heritage that sort of made British styles make sense here. And we've used that to our advantage a little bit as we've grown the scene. It's a very uh, unique approach. I will say we, we did have uh, one of the sons from Barvolo on many years ago. And I never really thought of it. I knew I had heard about the Cascale Fest. I had never thought of that identifying it with Toronto. And this is pretty cool. Again, because that's what I was saying before, that this trend towards beer that's for people that don't really like the taste of beer, it's its nice to actually talk about classic styles like this. Um, well, Jimmy, Jimmy, you, you got there. The, don't get me wrong. Cast Days is an amazing festival and, and we missed it last year terribly. But um, when you start start talking about traditional stuff and Cast Days in the same breath, a couple yes. of caveats have to be put in place. Um, because what happens with a, a lot of brewers who don't normally make cask conditioned ale is they go for the novelty factor. So we've had, you know, dry gummied beers. Um, we've had, was it, there's a pastrami and cabbage beer one time. I believe that was called George the worst Eagleson, idea ever. right? Was <laughs> yeah, that George and, Eagleson? It was, I, yeah. I think it was, yeah. So there, there being some pretty wacky off the wall stuff. And of course... They're the ones that sell out first. <laughs> um, so I remember, you know, one year going to cast days and um, Ralph had brought in a bunch of beer from Thornbridge. And I went to Thornbridge's booth. Thornbridge, for those of you who don't know, is a, a legendary brewery in England. Um, and I ordered a half of Jaipur because they don't, you don't serve pints, you serve little halves and tasters and stuff and um i turned to my friend who i was with who was actually from the uk and i said yeah, i suppose it would look bad if all we did was just stand here all day drinking jaipur because <laughs> it was such a good beer even after you know being transported overseas um it had been so well taken care of it had dropped so beautifully it was nice and bright it was just gorgeous and people are going off to try the latest novelty this and that and i'm just standing there going this is the stuff people this is what you should be drinking i'll tell you it's funny about Caskill because i basically gave up on it years ago at my pub and um every once in a while we'd, we'd get in something like a coniston bluebird bitter or something from england but i swore that the only cask I, by then the only cask i would drink would be a, a properly conditioned English cask. Um, this is pretty cool to talk about this. Um, 
Tell me more about Toronto Toronto beer, guys. Um, there's probably some some other styles that are popular there. Well, just before we leave, Cast, uh, one last thing, and I don't want to kind of um, just sit here and, and talk great things about the granite, but this deserves mention. Um, and the last time I judged at the Great British Beer Festival, I judged on the table of best bitters. And at the GBBF, when you're doing a final round judging, you're not judging everything. It's one round of eight or nine beers, and that's it. You're just served, you're served the best of the best. And when I got back from that trip, I went almost straight to the granite, and I ordered a pint of the best bitter special, what we you know, aficionados refer to as dry hop because it's a dry hop best bitter. And I was convinced on that first taste that that was a beer that was the equal of many of those beers that I sat, sat at, and sipped at the final table at GBBF. So it is that high quality. So when I'm in Toronto, it is the only place separate from the new cask in a box, the only place to, to get the cask is at the Granite or is it sold at other pubs? There are other places that take it as well. Um, yeah, there are a number of pubs around the city that do carry cask. Um, oh my gosh, I'm drawing a blank right now. Well, let's say see, what, say what, right. and Barvolo, um, Bar Barhop, Barhop, yeah. No, there's a fair amount. I think the only cafe has that as well. Oh, and if you're looking have... for a, a really Canadian pub, uh, how about the Queen and Beaver? <laughs> <laughs> and the Oxley. They're, oh, they're not affiliated anymore, but... No, yeah. they're not. Yeah. No. Jordan, I think... Can you say the name of that pub again? That is the Queen and Beaver. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm going to that one. Um, so, so, Jordan, you're saying that... Um, so, there, is there, there a thriving kind of beer bar pub scene in Toronto as well? There absolutely is. Um, you know, at the end of lockdown, we're going to see exactly how many of them remain. I think we've been in lockdown longer than any other city in North America because uh, they're taking it pretty seriously. But uh, Bar Hop has like three locations. Bar Volo has a couple. There's a legendary pub on the Danforth called The Only Cafe that's just uh, my idea of exactly where you want to go and drink. Um, there, There is a huge number of craft beer establishments at this point. It, it would take forever to recount all of them, I think. So w w tell us why you love the only cafe. Well, the only cafe is the kind of place that becomes a bar over time. I mean, when you start a bar, it doesn't necessarily have stuff on the walls, but the only cafe has existed long enough that it's got decoration from decades of existence. It's got, uh, you know, people's records and artwork that was donated and beer memorabilia that may have come and gone some 20 years ago. Uh, they've got just about everything you could possibly want. When the staff clock in to do a shift, they do a shot of Jägermeister. That pretty much tells you everything you need to know. <laughs> uh, the uh, manager's got a vinyl collection there. It's uh, pretty hip, pretty happening. They've got a new vegan uh, restaurant on one side of their place. They've actually opened up so it's three doors wide on the street front. It's, uh, it's uh, kind of a common place. The uh, beer selection's really good. They've got some cask. They've got bottles. They've got just about everything you could want and a youth hostel upstairs, you know, if wow. you're looking for somewhere to stay. Love this place. So what about licensing in, in, in Ontario? Um, do pubs have to serve food? Can breweries serve pints? What, what are, are there anything that's 
different about Ontario than about New York, for example? Pre-COVID or post-COVID? <laughs> well, let's say let's say pre-COVID because we're we're going back to it. <laughs> Well, because we got we got dragged kicking and screaming into the 20th century, not the 21st, the 20th, um, because of the pandemic. Um, the government decided that our bars and restaurants needed um, some assistance. So suddenly they were allowed to sell uh, beer to go. They were allowed to sell um, now bottled cocktails so you can make cocktails to go. Um, bottled wines, et cetera. Whereas formerly everything went through the um, LCBO, which is the state controlled liquor organization. Um, or the in the case of beer, we have this thing called the beer store, which is a bastard cooperative uh, run by Molson Labatt. And very recently, uh, grocery stores as well. So other than that, um, I mean, it wasn't that long ago that breweries weren't even allowed to sell a pint in their tap room. They weren't allowed to charge money. They could only offer samples of their beers and they weren't allowed to, to sell you an actual glass of beer and charge you for it. That's changed, thank God. <laughs> New, York, New York was like that even 10 years ago. I used to go to Brooklyn Brewery and you could buy a token and then with the token you could get some beer. Um, it, it's very funny how, how things have evolved really quickly. What about you, Mary, Mary Beth? Um, wh what's evolved for you guys besides cask in a box uh, since COVID in terms of like laws and, and how you guys are operating? Um, not a whole lot, really. We So we're a restaurant as well. We're considered a tied house. So we have our brewery and we're tied to our restaurant here. Or sorry, the restaurant is tied to our brewery. Um, so obviously we've been affected in that way because food is a huge seller for us and we do a little bit of takeout here and there, but, um, we're just lucky that we had our store in place already. And as a result, we, we've been selling, we've been selling our beer out of the store. We started canning a lot more than we were before that we were doing, a lot of growlers, um, a few brands of cans, but we realized that we needed to get to a bigger market. So we started canning practically all of our brands. We have a small two-man cask canner uh, in our cellar. So we do a lot with that, but we also get a mobile canning company in to do a lot of the grunt work. So that's been good. Um, but what was I going to say? The... Oh gosh, I lost my train of thought. Um, That's okay. It, it's it's so much going on. It's really hard to keep up. And I, mostly, I like hearing just about the character of of where you guys are, and and that there's this thriving uh, craft beer scene, um, which is really cool. And I'm glad you reminded me of Barvolo because I always feel like I have a place to visit when I'm in Toronto, and I still haven't been. Um, I want to go back to Jordan. I, I was reading some of your your articles. Uh, what's the name of your blog again? St. John's Word. Um, if you ever come up with a name for a blog, don't do it during the first week. You're stuck with a bad pun forever. <laughs> well, it's a good one. I really liked your articles. And the one I wanted to ask about, because I always care about local ingredients, you, you wrote an article about Ontario hops. You want to summarize that for us? Oh, sure. The Ontario uh, hop industry is relatively new. It's kind of a nascent development. And what's happening with it is, of course, they've taken, you know, sea hops from the Pacific Northwest and they've transplanted them here. And they're not quite sure what to do with them exactly because they don't come out 
quite right. Uh, hop terroir is an interesting problem in that if you plant Cascade in Yakima, you're going to get, you know, Cascade as it exists. You're going to get the de facto pine and grapefruit kind of thing. Uh, if you plant it in Ontario, you're going to get different results based on what part of Ontario you're in. Ontario is four times the size of Great Britain. Uh, the distance between Thunder Bay and Ottawa is basically the same as Kent in the United Kingdom and Zatik in the Czech Republic. So it's pretty much catch-as-catch-can in terms of the character of hops you're going to get. So one of the things I'm working on is actually coming up with a uh, hop rub protocol for the Ontario Hop Growers Association so that we can develop some language so that they can describe the hops that they're growing properly. You see, we've got all this great stuff. We've got, uh, you know, the Ontario, the way we used to market ourselves was, a, a you know, good things grow in Ontario. It was actually the Ontario agricultural slogan for a long time. <laughs> and I think if we can translate that to hops, you're going to see some real fireworks. We've got uh, some new interest from brewers in using locally grown hops there's one I tried just the other day from Muse Brewing in Norfolk County, which is west of Toronto, by about an hour and 15 minutes. And they were using hops from a hop yard called Hayho. They were using Cascade, Centennial, and Chinook. But instead of coming out citric and uh, piney, it came out sort of floral in a really kind of beautiful expression of those hops. It's just not what you would expect based on the names that they've got. So we're trying to convince people that they should care about the hops grown locally on the basis that they don't taste like anything else. It takes a long time as a market to decide that you're unique, to understand that you've got strengths that are actually strengths. Uh, if on the face of it, you think that Cascade should taste this way and it doesn't, well, then that seems like a failure. But if it tastes good, regardless of what it's supposed to taste like, you've got the opportunity to rebrand. You've got the opportunity to get people really excited about this thing. So that's kind of what I'm working on in that regard. I'd quite like it if we could uh, find more local use for those hops. What about the names? Aren't some of the names of hops proprietary? I mean, if you're growing them in Ontario, do you have to, can you actually grow the same hops or do you have to like come up with entirely new hops? Well, we have some of those. Um, there are hops that people have found from sort of heritage growth, and also some that they've rebranded for their own purposes. It's sort of like Rogue in the Pacific Northwest, I suppose, that they started planting uh, hops that would have been protected by copyright, maybe from uh, the HBC or possibly the Yakima Valley Corporation, and they just renamed them with their own names. That was a good solution to that problem. We may end up doing that ourselves. But you're right. You know, you wouldn't be able to transplant Equinot and call it Equinot. In fact, you weren't allowed to call it Equinox. You had to change the name to Equinot. So <laughs> these are really significant concerns that people have. Well, they, I mean, there's lots of precedent for that, right? A, a lot of the New Zealand hops that we know and love today were originally planted as uh, classic European hop stock. And then, then when they realized that what the terroir was doing to them, they decided these needed a new name. So they, they renamed them as New Zealand hops. Um, and eventually I think that's, that happens everywhere, you know, not just in traditional hop growing areas, but you know, you, you've got to start from some stock somewhere and then eventually give it a name. Rakao, Wakatu, Waiiti, those kind of things. Yeah. They, you know, I think, I, I think it was Ruaka that started as Hollertau. Yeah, that makes sense. 
Um, so, you know, they, they realize what the terroir does to the, the, and we're starting to get a little too esoteric, I think. Um, but you know, it, it's just a matter of trying to convey some information to people in terms of what to expect. No, that's great. That's where I wanted to go. Then. And I, I wonder if Mary Beth, have you worked with any Ontario hops? And then the other part of that is, is if you're using Ontario hops, is that going to create a unique flavor profile that's different from using other hops? Um, we do a harvest ale every year. So when we go and we get the hops right off the vine and drive back to the brewery and throw them in the boil, we've done that for the last, I want to say, six years or so. Uh, for four years now, we've been working with VQH Farms, which is a family um, a family-run farm. They only started doing hops not that long ago, maybe six or seven years ago. Uh, before that, we were working with a nice couple, Gail and Phil from Goodlot, which is just in Caledon, not too far away. So, yeah, supporting local has always been something that has been incredibly important to me as we are a neighborhood pub. Um, so community, again, so important. And I love doing the Harvest Ale. I'm the one that always goes to get the hops because I love going to the hop yard and seeing the guys on the farm and talking about the hops and all that nerdy stuff. But, um, yeah, the it's the Harvest Ale always gives a different kind of flavor anyway because you're using the fresh hops. But um, I suppose there's been it, – it will taste slightly different, but never – I'd never say to myself, oh, like, did I get the wrong hop from them or anything like that? It's it's always very lovely, and I'm always very happy with the beers that we make with them. That's great. So we've been talking about English-style ales and Ontario hops. Uh, I don't know if it was Jordan's or Stephen's Instagram, but um, a couple you mentioned um, Toronto, like, Belgian-style beers. Um, and there it, – it's d- – does anyone want to talk about that, the, the, the quality of some Toronto or, or Ontario breweries in terms of Belgian-style beers? Well, you know, Belgian style's terribly out of fashion these days. Um, but thankfully, some of the brewers around here haven't quite got that uh, message. And uh, especially saisons. It seems we have quite a number of saisons kicking around in Ontario. You know, they had their moment south of the border um, where everybody was producing a saison of some sort. And then all of a sudden that kind of came to an end. Well, it never really stopped up here. So we're still, we're still good with saisons and we got, we got a bunch of people playing around with things like triples and doubles. Um, And, and in fact, Ontario, one of the great strengths of Ontario brewers has always been traditional beer styles. You know, back in the 90s, you would find almost only traditional beer styles in Ontario. It was, you know, anything German, Czech, um, Belgian, English, and that was about it. Uh, so it's it's nice to know in a way that, well, we now have a lot more experimenting going on, innovation, and that type of thing. There's still that uh, tried and true, you know, you can, you can get... Uh, an amazing Svetli Leszak uh, Czech lager in in Toronto, um, which is as good as what you can get in Prague. 
uh, you can get an amazing brown ale. You can get, uh, you know, a, a great saison. These these are, you know, linchpins of, of beer drinking that it's nice to have being produced locally. Okay, how about this? So I really like Saison DuPont. Is there an Ontario brewery making something comparable to Saison DuPont? <laughs> sure done. <laughs> I, I love this. You see, the best way to think about Ontario is we're a little island. Um, because of the LCBO and because of how beer gets here and how ideas about beer get here, uh, basically once the idea is here, it's not going anywhere. So Saison here, I mean, we started with Saison DuPont. I think a lot of people had read Garrett Oliver's book and, um, you know, the brewmaster's table. He goes on about Saison DuPont for quite a while, maybe too long. Um, but it's, you know, it impressed, impressed upon the brewers here the importance of that beer. So about a decade ago, we had Mike Lackey from Great Lakes go to Buffalo and buy a bottle and then reculture the yeast. And then he's, you know, had a DuPont strain and everybody started making, you know, a DuPont style Saison. And it was very popular for about two or three years. And then they realized that's a lot of trouble. And uh, they went back to making IPAs. Uh, more like recently, though, we've gotten a couple of really interesting versions, the best of which I think is from uh, Muse Brewing in Norfolk County. These are uh, young people who are both, uh, I think Misha Gavin, who's the brewer, is Belgian. Uh, and his his wife is a young Dutch woman named Estelle, and they're making just fantastic Belgian-style beers. It's not just Saison. Uh, they actually won the Ontario Brewing Awards this year for their Cuvée Rouge, which is like a Flanders red. It had been barrel-aged for three years. I tried it next to Rodenbach, and it I'm not going to say it blew Rodenbach out of the water, but it edged it slightly on interest, like it was a more interesting beer. Uh yeah, there's a huge amount that, of that, that's the one I was getting to the, the the muse. I was really interested in that. Um, so, what would you say? Say, say I'm having a celebratory event like a wedding, and I wanted to um, instead of drinking champagne, I wanted to drink something celebratory that is from Ontario. Hmm. That's a, that's an interesting one. Um, I, I I think that there are a number of of beers that you could probably go to, but. I would be inclined to head down the um, QEW, the Queen Elizabeth Way, which is the major highway that crosses uh, from Niagara through to, um, well, well east of Toronto, um, and head down to a place called the Exchange Brewery, uh, which is in Niagara-on-the-Lake, which is like the first city of winemaking in Ontario. And they they hired in a brewer. Um, Jordan, you'll tell me his name because I've forgotten. Sam Maxbauer. Yeah, and Sam has uh, a pedigree from Jolly Pumpkin. Um, so they got him in, and they've been producing some absolutely amazing stuff, like really interesting. Again, much like Jolly Pumpkin, they've got a lot of barrels, and they put a lot of beer into barrels to see what happens to it, and usually it's a really good thing. So I'm not sure what specifically, but I'd, I'd be inclined to go to the exchange and find out what they have. I think that their Saison has uh, pink peppercorns in it, if I'm it remembering does. correctly. It does, yeah. And they have a spontaneous fermentation beer, which isn't a spontaneous fermentation beer. Um, they uh, What they did was, because they don't have a, a big... Um, uh, 
tub to spontaneous ferment in, um, the, they, they have gotten fermentations in like one liter buckets of wort from all around the region. And then they've cultured them up and they've splashed them together and they've made one kind of representative culture of the Niagara region, which they pitch into their spontaneous ale. That's very cool, man. And Mary Beth, what about for you? Is there another brewery that, that you would uh, raise a, a toast with or two? <laughs> um, oh, I have so many favorites. Um, you got to pick oh one. Gosh. Oh, I have to pick one? Okay, let's see. There's, there's always another day, but for today, we're walking down the street. Where, where am I going to go besides uh, granite? In Toronto specifically or Ontario? Your, your call. Okay. Um, I'm going to give a shout out to Little Beasts and Whippy. It's another female head brewer there. And actually they do a lot of uh, Belgian styles, saisons. And um, yeah, they're kind of all over the place, but she she has a soft spot for Belgian ales. So I would say them because they make great beer too. Oh, that's great. And for me, um, the only I, I know Bar Volo, I've had them on years ago and I and I know Luke from Godspeed. Um, and I think we've, we have also had Great Lakes on before. But um, any anyone to say anything about Godspeed? Because, you know, Luke coming from due to CL for, for us in New York, that that was a special brewery. Um, haven't had any Godspeed yet, though. I think everybody in Toronto loves Godspeed. Luke is amazing, and he makes unbelievable beer. That's absolutely right. I mean, the best thing I can say about Luke is that when he introduced that Svetlizak, the um, Czech pale lager that he makes, basically, at this point, the brewers are siloed. They don't really get out very much, but that day, all of the brewers in Toronto that mattered turned up, and basically, I sat at the end of the bar, I got there early, and as brewers came in, they would order a pint of this beer. And, you know, brewers like to gossip. Present company excluded, Mary Beth. Um, but, you know, they stood there silently appreciating this beer. It was the first time I've ever seen 10 brewers stand there just completely happy. Smiles on their faces, not grousing about anything. Uh, if you can make that happen with a Czech pale lager, it must be amongst the best in the world. Mm-hmm. To me, he's Luke, Luke Beam. Going way back, man. One of the, the I, I'm I'm dying to go to Toronto, and, and and talking to you guys is making me not only thirsty, but really want to go there. Um, but Jimmy, Jimmy, you know, you you really, I think I've, and this I'm going to sound like a homer when I say things like this, but I'm really not because I've frankly been down on Toronto for more years than I've been up on Toronto. But right now, Toronto is, uh, in my view a world-class beer city. I mean, I think it's the equal of a Denver or a San Francisco or a London, England. I think that you can go around if you want a beer bar. Our beer bars are top of the line when they're allowed to be open, which they're not now. Our breweries are, you know, we've got so many urban breweries now that are actually really good. Um and it, it's easy to get around. Uh, we have a relatively reliable transit system and, of course, Uber and Lyft and taxis and all that kind of stuff. And it, 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 I've done this a couple of times 
in the last four or five years where I've just gone out to go to places and continued on for most of the part of the day. And it's, it's just damn impressive. It really is. Well, thank you, Steve. And I really appreciate you helping put this show together. Um, any other final words from Jordan and Mary Beth? And then we're going to close out. I think, you know, if you think about the Ontario market and how it's developed over time, if you think about Toronto, for a long time, we had strengths that we thought of as failures. It's kind of like the hop industry that we've got at the moment. Like we were not excited about our own beer. We were excited about stuff that was coming in from America and periodically people here would drive to Buffalo to go and see what new stuff had come out, you know, from American breweries. And over time, what's happened is that we've finally gotten to the point, I think maybe as a result of the pandemic specifically, where, you know, there isn't really any import. You can't go to Buffalo. The border is closed. You can't get the hype beers from the States unless somebody is mailing them to you. And I do see that happen on Facebook groups. They probably shouldn't be doing that. Um, but people forced to drink local has given them an appreciation of the stuff that exists here and the quality of it. Just the fact that there's so much variety, something like 440 brewing entities in the province making God knows how many beers, uh, Many of them are very, very good. I mean, we have the same percentage of misses as everybody else. But the stuff that we've got that is at the top of the line, uh, it's great. And the fact that people are realizing that now, uh, especially locally, and that they've got some pride in it. You can feel there's a little groundswell under it. It's impressive. Thank you, Jordan. On the same token, um, I, for as long as I've been brewing, I'll say, I've been... Pretty much only drinking Ontario craft beer. Um, I don't normally go to the import section. I I am extremely happy with what we have here. And I remembered what I was going to say before just with the pandemic and that we went, we do um, online deliveries now. We never used to do that before. And because everybody else is doing that with the pandemic, I've been able to try beer from all over Ontario that I may not have been in the past. So I have had my, I've been opened or sorry, I've been able to try beers that I wouldn't have before. And um, yeah, it just impresses me that much more with what we're producing here. And I'm extremely happy to only be drinking that right now. So. I think that's a great point. I mean, I write the craft beer guide for the province, and I've had the privilege of going everywhere and trying everything. And that's not something people can do. They don't have the total picture of the market in their heads. And knowing what I knew, I'm not entirely surprised that this has happened, given that people are now paying more attention. I think just the ability to try things because of delivery has changed the game immensely. For sure. This is very cool, guys. Steven, thank you so much. Uh, I cannot wait to go to Toronto. My writer friend, Nan Nancy Matsumoto, is up there. And uh, Luke Beam, Luke Beam from Godspeed. So, And I'll get, I finally get to go check out Barvolo, Tomas. His name is Tomas, right? One of the That's sons. Right. Yep. And so looking forward to it. And Granite is on my list. And you guys, this is the show I want to keep going for two hours, but um, – we, we've talked a lot, and thank you guys for indulging me and spending the time with me here on Heritage Radio Network. Thanks to our engineer, Armin Spengen, and our producing intern, Caroline Fox. 
Thank you so much, Stephen, Jordan, and Mary Beth for joining me here. I'm Jimmy Carboni. I'm the host on Beer Sessions Radio. We'll catch you next time. Have a good day, guys. Woo! All right. Beer Sessions Radio is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.